One of the things that people noticed most about Jesus during his three years of kind of public ministry was the way that he taught and the way that he preached. People noticed there was something different about the way he spoke. He spoke with authority and conviction. And he spoke on a variety of topics. Uh, He talked about marriage and divorce. He talked about children and the elderly. He talked about materialism and its dangers. He talked about forgiveness and how to extend it. He even taught people how to pick a seat when they're invited to a party. He spoke on a number of topics, but one of the things that people noticed about Jesus is that no matter what topic he was talking about, it all pointed towards the same conclusion that he wanted for the people that were listening. A response that he wanted from the people of his day and a response that he wants from me and you as well. And this was so crystal clear to the people in his day that when word got out that Jesus began preaching and teaching, people said, well, what's he talking about? And when Matthew recorded the life of Jesus, he said, well, when he began preaching, they didn't have a long list of things that you need to go hear him talk about this, 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 and this. Matthew said, we could summarize it in one sentence. He said, from that time on, when Jesus began his ministry, he began to preach, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so when he talked about things like materialism, his hope was that his audience would repent. And when he saw people that didn't think they needed to repent, he had extra words of caution for them. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was his message. That was his hope. That was his goal. So the question for me and for you is, is that something that we are doing as followers of Jesus? Is repentance something that you you feel like you're good at and you do it regularly? And it's it's not just a one-time thing that you do, but it's part of your everyday life. Repentance can be a tricky thing because on the one hand, when we gather, it's a, it's a celebratory tone of what Jesus has done for us and what he what the, the change of identity that he brings for us. But at the same time, even as we celebrate his goodness, it is so important for us to also practice what he wanted us to do, to repent, to repent. So Jesus commanded repentance. And for followers of Jesus, this is something that we are called to do. The reason that he commanded repentance is because it's not something that we do naturally. Uh, He had to teach. He had to tell us to do it. And so what we want to do today is just spend a moment at his feet, uh, at his word, listening to him for for why and how we can go about this practice, this habit of repentance. And before we talk about what repentance is, I just want to clarify what repentance is not. Repentance doesn't save you. Like, it's not like God, his ability to save you is dependent on your ability to repent. Rather, repentance doesn't save you. Repentance keeps you close to the one who saves you. And so that's why Jesus wanted everything to point towards that. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Repentance draws us closer to him. And also, repentance is so much more than 
just saying sorry. It's, it's, <laughs> repentance is much more than being sorry. It's more than getting down on your hands and knees and saying, dear Father in heaven, please forgive me, amen. That's the beginning. But scripture actually lays out a, a wider view, both before and after that act of asking for forgiveness. And so today we, we approach his word, seeking guidance on how to make sure that we are appropriately following Jesus in our lives, having been saved, having been redeemed, practicing what he wants us to do. So repentance doesn't save you. It brings you close to the one who saves you. And repentance isn't just being sorry. It's not even just saying sorry, but it's more than that as well. And we'll just turn to one verse to get a, to get a, a definition for what does repentance mean. It's from Ezekiel chapter 18, starting at verse 30. Ezekiel told the people, repent. And then thankfully he goes on to describe what he means. Turn away from all of your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit, a new direction, a new desire. Get rid of implies that you're not sort of dabbling with things and asking God to forgive you with it at the same time. And for clear, more clarity about what re repentance means, the Greek word for repent, which we'll look more about in just a little bit in 2 Corinthians, it, it means a change of mind and also a change of life. And so that's a good working definition that we're going to build on as we, as we dig more into God's word today. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. Now, a, a quick example of this from, from my life, and not like the spiritual repentance, but just a non-spiritual um, example, just to start with the everyday, and then we'll work towards the spiritual. So an example from this is that when I was a kid, um, I liked to play with fire. I'll just put it out there. I like to play with fire. Fire was fun to play with. And we had a, a nice big property outside of town where there was plenty of acreage to play with. And so every once in a while, I'd go out and play with fire. Um, one day, we had what I'd like to call an uncontrolled burn in our backyard. <laughs> Thankfully, it wasn't my fault. My dad also liked to play with fire. And, and so there was this uncontrolled burn, and it was... We, the, the police or the fire department actually showed up because they saw all the smoke and we had rakes and it was too far for the hose to reach. It was, it was almost really bad, almost really bad. And from that day forward, I had a change of mind about fire. No longer was it something fun just to oh, play around with. And this change of mind led to a, a change in the way I lived. God wants us to have a change of mind with regard to the sin in our life. Don't play around with it like it's something fun. Have a change of mind where you see it for what it is. And when you have a change of mind, it also changes your life. So let's look at an example of this in 2 Corinthians. And to set up the, the, the text that we're about to look at in 2 Corinthians... Um, what you might not know is that 2 Corinthians is actually the third Corinthians. It's the third letter that Paul wrote to these uh, Christians in Corinth. Uh, for some reason, we don't have the original second letter, but I, I do have a hint as to why maybe it wasn't copied and passed along. Um, see, what was happening in Corinth was some really bad stuff. 
Uh, they're, they're, they were kind of falling apart as a church, as Christians, in a lot of different ways. There was sexual immorality happening inside the church. They were basically practicing an abomination of the Lord's Supper, and they were just assimilating with the culture around them. So Paul sent them one letter calling them out for these things, but when they still didn't change, he sent them a second letter, which apparently was rather harsh in tone. So much so that when he writes what we have as 2 Corinthians, which we'll see in just a moment, he backtracks and he says, oh, I actually felt bad when I sent you guys that letter because I was sure that you were just going to hate me and cut me off. And maybe that's why they didn't copy this one and send it throughout the area for other people to read. They were a little ashamed of the words that Paul had to share with them. But we're going to pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where he recalls what's going on. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it. I do not regret it. The, the word for regret in Greek is very similar to the word for repent in the Greek. It's a, uh, a change in heart, or a change of feeling. He says, I do not regret it. I don't have a change in feeling over what I did, though I did regret it for a moment, but I see that, it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. My harsh letter to you, I'll, 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 I'll be honest, my letter was harsh. I regretted it for a moment, but now I don't. Now I don't. And the reason he doesn't regret it anymore is because of what it accomplished. He says, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, a change of mind that also overflowed in a change of, of life. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. My words hurt you. They made you full of sorrow, but a good kind of sorrow that God used for a good purpose. And then he goes on with this classic phrase that just helps us get to the heart of what, what is required for healthy repentance. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And so a lot of times when we teach our kids what to do after they are naughty, quite often what I tell my kids is go to whoever you are naughty against and say, I'm sorry, which always they get the words out, but I'm not sure the heart is behind it. I'm not sure the, the mind has changed or repented but I can see the words coming out. Godly sorrow is so much more than just saying, God, I'm sorry. But a godly sorrow means that you are moved and troubled because of what has happened. Something is disturbing you about your sin. And we'll talk about this in just a moment, like how to develop that, how to have this godly sorrow over things to the point where it, it just draws you into this the good thing called Repentance. But godly sorrow, the good kind of sorrow, brings repentance. And then he goes on to say, this, this uh, repentance that leads to salvation. So the, the kind of salvation, um, we can look at it in a, a spiritual term. Uh, ultimately, godly sorrow leads you to Jesus, the only solution for your sin. And that brings salvation. And that's what Paul means here. We can also think of it in a lesser scale. 
Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which will lead to reconciliation, to coming to someone and saying, hey, I know that my ways were were wrong, and I'm sorry. I'm going to try to change my ways. Can you help me do that? So godly sorrow isn't just being sorry or saying you're sorry. It's something that leads you to recognize your ways and want to change them. So godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, with no regret. In other words, going back and saying, oh, we shouldn't have done that. But actually, when you have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, repentance is actually the antidote to regret. An example is maybe you've got a big fight with someone that that, uh, you love dearly, and you, you did some things you shouldn't have, or you said some things you shouldn't have, and it's not fun in the moment, and in that moment, you regret what you did. But repentance actually takes that bad thing called regret, and it brings something beautiful out of it. Because when, when there is reconciliation, admitting your fault, repenting, and changing, the relationship gets even stronger. And so you look back in hindsight, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but repentance has served its purpose. It's brought us closer together. So it leads to no regret. And in this case, no regret with the Apostle Paul and, the, and these people. Then he shifts gear. He says, okay, that's what godly sorrow brings, but worldly sorrow, that's different. Worldly sorrow leads to death. So godly sorrow is what the Apostle, or what, uh, yeah, the apostle Peter had. What Peter had, after he had disowned Jesus three times when Jesus was on trial and ultimately executed. Peter denied him three times. Peter was filled with sorrow. And we just talked about this not long ago. His sorrow led him to the other disciples. It led him to reach out to Jesus for forgiveness. That was a godly sorrow. Um, This worldly sorrow is what Judas had. When Judas betrayed Jesus for some silver coins, he also had sorrow, but it was a worldly sorrow that led him away from Jesus. Um, This worldly sorrow leads you inwardly where it says, well, I'm just a horrible person. I might as well just give up. No one can love me. No one forgive me. And this worldly sorrow leads you to a place of despair. And Paul is so thankful that his letter didn't lead them to earthly sorrow. Rather, the reason he's writing this is because they were led to a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow where they were moved in a way where they didn't like their sin, but they didn't lose hope. Their sorrow moved them closer to Jesus. So as you think back at your last week, month, year. Have you been practicing godly sorrow or earthly sorrow? The the thing about earthly sorrow is that it's kind of our default. The the earthly sorrow, it's uh, usually what leads us to identify ourselves as a victim. Uh, Yeah, you're mad at me. I deserve it. That's earthly sorrow that kind of leads you to despair and to hopelessness. It's this godly sorrow of being moved in the right direction that we want. And have you ever been troubled by not being troubled about something? 
Have you ever been troubled, maybe sitting in church and you're thinking, man, I, I wish I, I felt worse about this sin that I know is a sin, but I just don't feel bad about it. Maybe what you're feeling is an earthly sorrow. Maybe what you're feeling is regret over the consequences of sin, but you don't really feel a godly sorrow in the sense that you want to turn from it. And in that case, here's some direction for seeking a godly sorrow. And the first step is to understand how does my sin hurt other people? There is no sin you commit that doesn't hurt someone. Every sin hurts someone in some way. Even the sins done in secret will overflow into other people's lives in public. Seek that out. Find the hurt and feel sorrow over that. And then by extension, it's not too much more difficult to see the next layer of this, which is to ask the question, how does my sin hurt God? Here he has called me his child, his loved, forgiven, redeemed child. How does my sin hurt or dishonor him or his name? Those are two questions that might lead you to a deeper godly sorrow that wants you to turn from sins, to to have a change of your mind in a way that changes your life. And and the last thing we need to talk about is maybe we don't want to turn, maybe we don't want to repent in times when we think that we we can still enjoy the sin, to have fun with the fire but not get burned with it. And in that case, what I would direct you to are all the words of caution that we see throughout the scripture. And the, the, the biggest one, the only one you really need to look to is what Jesus said when he stepped onto the stage. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. And repent was not something where he's overbearing you with something that's hard that he's asking from you. But when he says repent, he's inviting you to something so much better. A change of your mind. A change of your life. That deep down you know means freedom for you and glory to him. And just so that we don't get confused on the big goal of this, um, what's the goal of repentance? Um, I know, I know uh, in my mind, it's so easy to get caught on all the successes to say, yeah, I overcame that, I overcame that, I'm growing in this, and God must be proud of me because of all the good things I'm doing. And I th- maybe to some degree, there's, there's some like good job for the, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. There, there's some of that. But there, the one time Jesus said there's rejoicing in heaven wasn't because of how good people were. Here's what Jesus said. When when there's rejoicing in heaven, it's because of this. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, who sees that their ways are causing sin, are harming others, and are dishonoring God. And they say, God, change my mind. Change my life. I need your help to do that. And for you and me, it it might simply look like this, to say to to someone, a a trusted person, or just to say to your father in heaven, all by yourself, to say, I've been going the wrong way. I've been going the wrong direction, but I want to change. 
Because I know that the, the direction I've been going, it's been hurting me, it's been hurting others. I know there's sorrow. I regret it, and, but more than that, I have a godly sorrow over the way that my sin is making a difference in my life and in others. So I've been going the wrong way, but I want to change directions. But desire to change is different than actually changing, isn't it? Some of you, I, I sense this sometimes, where there's this desire to change, but no matter how many steps I think I'm taking towards a new destination, it's like, there it is again. So what does God do with that? When you repent, but then you go back to that same thing, and when you don't change, what happens? What does that mean? And I know, first of all, what it means, before you even think about what it means to God, we, we often put that on ourselves. We say, well, because I haven't changed, I guess I'm just the same old person. I guess God can't forgive someone like me who can't even repent right. Because, you know, repentance should result in a change of what you do. That's what Jesus taught. That's what John the Baptist taught. That's what Peter taught. All of them taught that. Repentance results in a change of what you do. But, but God, why can't I change? It's because ultimately, repentance begins with a change of who you are. And this is the incredible thing that Jesus both invited people to and accomplished at the same time. Because as he stepped on the stage and began to say, repent, the kingdom of God is near. He also began a journey that would take him to a place where he would give you the ability to repent in him. Because true repentance isn't about an inner willpower to change. True repentance begins with a change of who you are. And this is the journey of Lent. To follow a savior who begins with a message but ends with a cross. He lives his life as a perfect son of God. Yet he ends it as one who's being crucified as a sinner. Repentance is a change of what you do, but it begins with a change of who you are. And that's what Jesus has given to you. And so as, as you think about his invitation, or should we just say it, his command to repent, sometimes in life this will bring you trouble because you look at your past performance of how repentance has worked for you and you say, well, I guess I can't overcome this sin because of who I am. And in that moment, Jesus steps in and says, I think you've forgotten who you are. Because what you did before, what you've done in the past, that is erased and a new you now stands here today. A new you who is not perfect, who still has a sinful nature, and that sinful nature still wants to drift in a different direction away from him. But every day, he gives you the opportunity to lay before him your sin and say, Savior, you loved me so much. You gave your life and you, you took away my sin. Would you help me to change it? Not for my glory, but for yours. To reflect your love in this world. And that's where the power of repentance comes from. 
Not just you changing your life, but Jesus changing who you are. And so in just a moment, we'll have an opportunity as a church to really do a more extensive meditation on a confession of sins. Uh, we're going to look through the, the Ten Commandments, um, the, the perfect law of God, and see from them a reflection of who God created us to be compared with who we actually are. And as we go through these commandments, there will probably be something in every single one of them where you will say, I need to repent. I need to repent. I need to repent. And this is an opportunity for us every day, every year, to sit down and, and, and bring God into those areas. There is no shame. And bring him into that area with, with no regret. Because this is an opportunity for him to grow you closer to him. Repentance isn't something that saves you. Repentance, that practice, that discipline of repentance is what keeps you close to the one who has saved Let's pray. Dear Savior, during your life here on earth, as you preach to people and talk to them, you, you brought up so many different topics and areas of life. But in all of them, the goal was for people to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to you as the answer to it. I know that this can be a difficult practice and discipline for us to develop because it can so easily lead to despair. The moment we try to change, we open up the opportunity for disappointment when we fail. So I thank you that our identity isn't tied to our past. It's tied to your cross. And our hope isn't tied to what we might do in the future. It's tied to your empty tomb. So this Lenten season, as we have an opportunity to be especially mindful of the sins that were on you as you suffered and died on the cross, I pray that your perfect love would shine through the darkness to help give us a godly sorrow over what we have done and to use that godly sorrow as an opportunity for repentance, a change in our mind that's reflected in a change in our life. Thank you for your grace and your guidance and your love. We pray this all in your name. Amen.